Before we get into the thick of today's episode, I wanted to take a moment and set the intention for the topic that we're covering today, race. This episode is by no means intended to cover every nuance and lived experience of women of color, nor is it intended to sequester the voices of women of color to one episode and then check off the box and consider the subject covered. However, we did feel that the topic of race was a conversation that warranted having its own episode and exploration. So let's talk about it. I'm Amy Porterfield, and you're listening to Talking Body. When it comes to body image, there are experiences that feel universal across all women, such as the pressure to conform to a narrow standard of beauty. Because that standard is largely based on European ideals, including a preference for lighter skin, white women often start from a place of relative privilege when it comes to attaining it. Even today, as we move toward more body diversity in our media, we often see black and brown women's bodies commodified into a sexualized ideal. Think about the controversy Blake Lively courted after posting a red carpet image to her Instagram with the caption, LA face with an Oakland booty. It was a play on lyrics from Sir Mix-a-Lot's Baby Got Back, an unabashed 90 celebration of black women's backsides, inspired by his girlfriend at the time, Amelia Dorsey. In a retrospective on the song published by Vulture in 2013, Dorsey said, quote, My background is such that being a woman of color, I'm half Mexican, half black, and have always been curvy, was not appreciated at all. I worked at a modeling agency as a teenager, and I taught hair and makeup in runway classes to six-foot-tall girls who weighed 90 pounds. But I didn't get much work, and neither did anyone who looked like me. End quote. By applying the lyric to an image of a tall, blonde woman who was traditionally thin, many felt that Lively had given the words a different, more insidious meaning. White face, black booty. The sexual obsession with black women started way before Sir Mix-a-Lot. Sarchi Bartman, often anglicized to Sarah, was a black woman of the Khoikhoi people in the Eastern Cape of Africa. At 16, her husband was murdered by Dutch colonists, and shortly afterward, Sarah herself was sold into slavery. Her captor moved her from Cape Town to London, where slavery had been abolished by law, but still continued in practice. It was during this period that Sarah began to be put on display. Starting around the age of 21, Sarah's nude body was exhibited around London for the entertainment of white Europeans, who nicknamed her the Venus of Hottentot. Remember the Venus statues we talked about before? This is where the moniker came from. Throughout her short life, multiple men profited off the exhibition of her body, the fetishization of her features described with racist and sexist terms in order to perpetuate the idea that black women were biologically distinct from white women. After she died in 1815, at the age of 26, her body was cut into pieces and put on display in several French museums to coincide with a growing European fascination with black bodies. In 1932, 
her skeleton, and a cast of her body were moved to the Museum of Man in Paris, where she, unlike the other specimens, was turned to face away from the spectators. Why? So they could better see the cast of her buttocks. In 2002, almost 200 years after she had died, Sarah's remains were finally returned home at the request of the South African government. She had been on display in France until 1976. Bringing the topic back to Blake Lively's Instagram post, there's a long history of commodifying and fetishizing features associated with women of color that makes their piecemeal adoption by white women, an L.A. face, and an Oakland booty, feel pretty uncomfortable. Most of the women we spoke to for this podcast described experiencing discomfort at the chasm between the way they wanted to present themselves to the world and the way they felt they were expected to present by society. But for many women of color, the gap felt even wider. I never used to feel worried about going to auditions because I just felt me until I realized from society at large and from media and new media that actually I'm, I'm, not, a, I'm not a targeted person, but I am a token of a person to add into your show or to add into your film to just make it a little bit more colorful, but not too colorful. I feel like I was always hypersexualized. Men came on to me all the time when I was young, whether they were married or not married or young, old, in between. And I feel like a lot of it had to do with the way that I looked. I looked exotic, therefore maybe mysterious, maybe the wicked city woman, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think definitely, I feel like there's this, um, there's this like desire or like image pressed in like the Latinx community to just be like tan and slender and have beautiful makeup and beautiful long hair. And I like never fell into that. And it definitely made me feel super self-conscious because all my friends growing up fell into that very easily and naturally, but I just, I never had the like big curly, beautiful hair or like the, the body type that all my friends had. And then, and then in the media, when there's like movies or shows that show like Latinx people and they're just like so gorgeous. And I was like, man, I, I don't think I'm ever going to look like that, but I still identify with that culture, like the food and the music and all my family members. But I still like have this big appreciation for it. I definitely think it like sculpted me like, man, I'm just never gonna be like that. But now I'm like, that's okay, you know? I think the most recent thing that was very strange was a woman at a bar asking me the the typical where are you from oh i i live here no but i like where's your family from and i said my family's from lebanon and then she said oh that's great and then i said but i was born here and like i've i you know lived in texas for like 10 years and she seemed flustered and she said oh well welcome and i said Thank you, because I just didn't know what else to say. It was, it was like, it, it's a perfect example of a microaggression, I think, for people who don't know what that is, because it wasn't, it was clear that she was trying to be kind and friendly. 
Uh, and the way that she went about it made me feel very awkward and othered, but she was not trying to hurt my feelings. She just did not have, it, she did not understand that she was being inappropriate, which is why I think it's important to have conversations about stuff like this so that people can learn that sometimes the things that they say when they're well-meaning can actually make somebody feel really un unhappy and, and unwelcome, actually. <laughs> So in order to do this podcast, I went in search of women whose lived experiences were different from my own in order to learn more about how race and body image intersect. A few weeks ago, I sat down with Pia Schiavo Campo, who goes by Mix Fat Chick on Instagram and elsewhere. Pia describes herself as an intersectional feminist, author, social impact marketing strategist, and mom to a vibrant toddler. Here's what Pia had to say. So Pia, thank you so much for being here. I'm so happy to have you on. Thank you so much for asking me. I'm thrilled. Oh my gosh, it's going to be a great conversation. So let's get one thing out of the way right from the start. Since this is an audio medium and this episode is focusing on race, I am a white woman. And part of what I'm trying to do on this show is hold space for experiences that are different from mine. So First off, I want to ask you, how do you identify in the world and how do you feel that identity has shaped your relationship with your body? I mean, we're starting off big. Yeah, that's a great question. So I identify as fat, black, mixed, straight, and chronically ill. Um, and so um, I haven't always been in a large body. When I was younger, a child, and well into early adulthood, I was in a, you know, what we would consider a normal sized body. Um, and have struggled with an eating disorder for, you know, the better part of, let's see, 30 years. Um, and so I think that that has had a deep impact on how I, um, how I show up in the world, how I am treated in the world. Um, and, but I, I've come to a point at this time in my life at 45, where I, and really comfortable with, with who I am. Right. Um, other people may not be, but I am. <laughs> other people may not be comfortable with who you are, but you're comfortable with who you are. Exactly. That's powerful. That's powerful. So something I learned about when viewing your writing is the concept of racial gaslighting, which I feel like I had a vague idea of, but haven't confronted it head on until I read your infographic about it. So can you explain what racial gaslighting is and maybe talk about how it can show up specifically in conversations about bodies? Yeah, for sure. So racial gaslighting specifically is when someone manipulates information to make a victim. So in this case, it would be maybe a person living in a fat body or a person of color, um, making that person question their experience, question their memory or question their everyday reality. So a lot of times people who do the gaslighting do it sometimes knowingly, sometimes unknowingly. And it's really about avoiding taking accountability for benefiting from something that's harming me. Um, mm. and so, like, give me an example. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, it's, it's interesting. There are people who will say things like, um, when it comes to body size, you're not fat, you're beautiful. And it's like, well, I can actually be both. What you're really saying is you see fat as being something that's unattractive. Right. Um, and so you can't in your mind sort of see those two things as being um, complementary. 
Um, you know, there have been situations in, in you know, years ago in, in previous work situations where, um, you know, I can remember someone saying to me, I was leaving a job and going to work for a civil rights org. And they were like, civil rights? Like, what do you mean? What are you even talking about? Didn't we solve that a long time ago? Uh, you know, it, these kinds of things that, um, that happen, there are things that happen on social media a lot. I remember having you know, this, this visible conversation at social media with a black girlfriend about something that had happened to me that I knew was about race. I know that because I'm a black person living in America for long enough to know what that looks like. And this white woman that I know comes into the conversation and says, um, oh, you know, that person didn't mean that, you know, you can't just make these assumptions. And I was like, trust and believe. Whoa. I had to let her know. I was like, first of all, you weren't invited to this conversation. Second of all, don't ever undermine what my experience is as a person of color. And so those are the kinds of things. And very quickly, she backed off, right? Deleted her comment because she realized, mm -hmm. oh, shit, like I'm gaslighting somebody. Um, and it's, it's deeply harmful. Yeah. I can see that for sure. And I have to tell you, so with this podcast, I am the student. I have so much work to do in embody acceptance and loving myself just the way I am. And I have to tell you, when I was doing all my research and reading your blog and just pouring over everything that you've put out there, I get so triggered personally by the word fat and I'm a bigger girl. So like I, all my whole life I have been. And so definitely people would call me fat, but you say it with so much confidence. Like when I said, how do you identify? And one of the words is fat. Can you, I want to embrace that word. Can you, can you help me with how you got there? Yeah. You know, the thing is I, you know, we live in a society that tells us very clearly that the worst thing you can be in the world is fat. You yes. know what I mean? Like we have girls who would rather have cancer than be fat. That's a fucking problem. So, Huge. Right. So we live in a society that is all about diet culture. It's a huge industry. There's tremendous pressure that comes from the media. It comes from everywhere. And it practically demands that women be in thin bodies. We are told that if we are not thin, if we are not white, if we are not straight, if we are not young, that we are essentially somehow wrong. So if we are not working towards thinness or thin, then inherently something is wrong with us. We've been taught that beauty and that worthiness only comes in one specific size and one specific look, one notion of beauty. Um, and that's harmful. I mean, as I mentioned to you, I started dieting around age 12. So, and I stopped dieting probably in my mid to late thirties. So this has been a long, long process, Amy. It was not like one day I woke up and was like, Hey, I love myself. <laughs> And I, and I also want to say that I don't love myself or my body every day because I'm a human being. But what got me to this point was being absolutely exhausted with dieting, number one, tired of people talking about the latest diet they were on. I'm like, you being on a diet all the time is keeping you from focusing on real shit. Um, and I just, so it was many years of being in, in this community of people who were seeking body liberation and acceptance um, and realizing that fat only has meaning because we give it meaning. Like yes. if you just say fat and thin, right? They don't have to hold weight, right? Pun intended. Right. They're, they're just two things. That's all they are. They're descriptors. But it's like that additional meaning that we assign to it in our society. Fat means unattractive. It means lazy. It means um, something's wrong with you. 
Um, and right. so to claim the word fat is deeply empowering for me. And so oh, I, yeah. I'm not fat and that's okay. Like each person has to come to that, that space on their own. I don't know if that's helpful. It, it, it's very helpful. I love that. I agree. It would be so empowering for me if I claim that word. And two, I love that you said it didn't happen overnight. So I'm a work in progress. I can get there for sure. A lot of the work you do is about dismantling the ways we approach eating specifically that sometimes diet culture can be coded into things that are pretending not to be diets. So what are some of the more insidious examples you've seen of these hidden diets? Yeah, I think increasingly people understand that that's really, you know, just a diet in a different outfit. But, you know, when you see things like clean eating or I'm on a cleanse or I'm detoxing, I'm making a lifestyle change, right? All of those words are code for I'm on a diet. I am trying to lose weight. Um, and somehow people think that if they phrase it in a different way, that they are not succumbing to the pressure of having to be thin, of taking up less space, right? Um, yeah. So, you know, I did a post about clean eating being really problematic and, and being a result of white supremacy, which demands that we all look the same, behave the same. Um, and that, that doesn't work for me. I reject all manner <laughs> of diet. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, I can't even imagine how freeing that must feel. If I totally could say that with all honesty, I reject all manner of dieting. Like I feel that is where I want to get to. I think that is so inspiring. And you talked about that, that clean eating post you did, and it got a, a lot of people talking for sure. It was something I think, tell me if I got this wrong, clean eating is rooted in white supremacy. Is that what it said? Mm, that's right. Okay. So that kind of leads me to uh, this next thing I want to talk about, which kind of leads into it a little bit, where it's this idea of a vilification of cultural foods and how that contributes to disordered eating or negative self-image, particularly for people of color. So can you explain more about that for listeners and how they can identify that vilification for themselves? Absolutely. Um, so I think when, when we're thinking about food and what healthy food looks like, um, from the standpoint of our, our culture, you know, what does that look like? It looks like eating very little fat. It looks like, um, you know, you know, we're eating quinoa and then we've got some salad and we've got some lean chicken that has no skin on it, yeah. you know, organic yeah. only exactly, yeah. you know, keto, whatever, all of those things. And so for me, the problem with that is that it extinguishes culture, right? It extinguishes the culture you come from, come from. So I think what you're referring to is I had talked about, um, you know, when black people were enslaved in this country, you know, they had to eat scraps and they found a way to make those scraps be delicious. And hundreds of years later, I can find a way to connect to my culture and connect to my heritage through that food, right? I can go, damn, my people were ingenious. Damn, my people were resilient. Right. And so for me, being able to connect with that food, you know, what does clean mean even like who's defining what clean means? I'm eating food that nourishes my spirit. I'm eating food that nourishes my body as well. Um, and so why why do we try to take that away from people? Right. I mean, That's so true. Eating beans and tortillas is not as too many carbs. Before all of this mess, people were just fine eating the foods they ate. Right. <laughs> Yes. Such a, they weren't okay. 
such a great point. And when I was reading, when you were talking about this on your blog, I was thinking about my grandma. She's now passed, but I remember she's Italian, full-blooded. And I remember the Sunday night dinners where we made spaghetti and meatballs. And that was special. The day she died, I could cry over this. I made spaghetti and meatballs because that reminded me of her. And to, to take that away, to say that's not clean eating, there's a problem with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's tied to memory. It's tied to love. I think the problem is that we see food. We've been told that food is only for nourishment. Now we know that that's important, but food, as you said, it connects us to memory. It connects us to family, right? And those things are deeply, deeply important. And that health isn't just about physical, mental, spiritual, emotional as well. Yeah. So true. So true. Okay. So What's one question I'm, I'm nervous to ask this because I, I might've already asked it, but meaning what's one question you wish others would stop asking you about your body or about your work? Yeah. Um, so one of the things that people will say a lot, especially when I first started doing this work 10 years ago was people ask me, why do I call myself fat? You know, <laughs> that's kind of like me. Like, how do you say that word so easily? Right. Yeah. And that I get the question, but after 10 years, you kind of go, okay, read a book, get on the internet, you know, <laughs> self fat, you know, I mean, because that's how I identify, you know, I, I, that's what I see in the mirror that that's what I know to be true. I don't see that as being a bad thing. Um, but it's just about unlearning. And there's a lot of unlearning that we have to do. So yes, it's annoying, so but true. it also gives me an opportunity to help to de- destigmatize what the word means. Yeah. And that's why I asked you, I want to know, like, how can I want to embrace that word? I want it to be something I could easily say and feel good about it because it's the truth about how I feel about myself. So I appreciate you saying that. Okay. So I've been dying to ask you this question because one of the, the premise of this show, as I, as I make my way through these conversations is that I'm trying to explore what it means to love your body, but also want to change your body. And I want to know from you, do you feel like those feelings are incompatible And are there things that you want to change about your appearance? And what do you think about that in relationship to the work you do? This is a great question and it's a complicated question. I think that there's one answer. So I think first, maybe we need to break down a couple of definitions so that we can understand sort of the, this larger context. So we talk a lot about body love. So body love really puts the onus on us to love ourselves despite cultural norms about size and beauty right? So despite all the pressure, we have to find a way to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and love our fupas and our cellulite, despite, you know, diet ads, body liberation seeks to dismantle systems that oppress us. So we can live in our bodies without fear of harm, violence, or different treatment across the board. Um, And then body positivity, body positivity is something that I think has started as like this grassroots movement. And that has then sort of taken this turn to a place that can be toxic because a lot of times the way people talk about body positivity is that you should love your body every day, no matter what. And if you can't do that, something's wrong with you. I'm a fucking human being. I've been doing this work (laughs) 10 years and I still don't feel that way every day, you know? Um, And that's okay. Like who it's like, again, it's like, we're reaching for perfectionism. 
That's another one of these things that is rooted in white supremacy. It's perfectionism. Stop. Like, no, Mm. that is not the goal here, right? The goal is to just be able to sort of live with a certain ease and comfort um, without feeling that you're being vilified. Um, Yes. So, so all of those things are really important. And, and so at the end of the day, I think you should do whatever you want with your body. It's your body. You should do whatever the hell you want. That being said, I think that for those of us who want to change our bodies or think about changing our bodies, um, what we're really looking for is acceptance. Um, because when you say change your body, all of us immediately make the assumption you're talking about weight loss, right? But changing your body could mean wanting to have more muscle or being stronger, which is something that I want to do and am struggling with because of my chronic illness. Mm -hmm. So, um, and there are certainly people who choose to lose weight for any manner of reasons, whether it's health related or whether it's, you know, vanity or whatever that is. Um, but I think we have to stop and just ask ourselves, you know, what is this pressure that I'm feeling to take up less space? Like I am, I'm really feeding into this diet culture and why am I doing that? Um, so I don't have any hard and fast answers because I struggle too, you know? Yeah. Um, Sometimes I think about, and I appreciate you saying that you struggle. I know I should know that you struggle. You're human. You're not perfect, but I also really admire your work and know you've been in this so long. So I just assume you've got it all figured out, which is so stupid. I know because even in my line of work as an online marketer, people think that my business runs so seamlessly behind the scenes. And I'm like, what? we're a hot mess over here sometimes. So I get that when I'm in the other shoe, I kind of forget it, but I also, I have a coach and she always says like, if, like, if I said, I want to go on keto and she hates diets and she'll say to me, okay, give me the reason why, why do you want? Because I think the reason why is so important to whatever decision we make. And if it, for some reason was, I think this is going to give me more energy and my body feels good on these foods. That's a little bit different than I've got to lose weight fast. This weight has to come off. I look like a fat blob and I'm disgusted. And so do you think there's, there's merit behind the why, when we want to change our bodies to examine that? Absolutely. I think you have to examine it because I think that, you know, the sort of default is that we're dieting to lose weight so that we can fit into societal norms of beauty. Right. I mean, yes. I, I think that that's clear. We see it on the cover of every friggin' magazine, you know, or even on TV, it's like an ad for Weight Watchers followed by an ad for Oreos followed by an ad for liposuction. It, it's a mind fuck, right? And so right. the diet industry is a billion dollar industry. And so they're going to find ways to sell us things in different packages. We talked about that earlier. Um, and so, you know, I think we have to, we have to really be honest with ourselves. Is it really that we feel that removing certain foods make me feel better? That may be true, right? I mean, everybody is different. So I think if we go into making changes, I think they really have to be um, based on what you know about your body, mm-hmm. truthfully, yeah. right? Because yeah. if you are in a bigger body, but you feel great, you're active, you're, you know, and you're feeling good, then why do you really want to lose weight? Because someone told right. you to, someone told you you weren't enough. Um, and so I think many of us continue to struggle with that. Um, but I, I still refuse to do it. I'm just, I, I don't. I can't. I'm tired. (laughs) Amen. Amen. I'm tired. I want to end real fast with something that I love about what I read about you. And you are a fan of affirmations. 
And I know that you, you use them in your own personal life and talk to me a little bit about uh, why that's so important. Cause I think that the listeners of this podcast can get behind this. They might not be doing it, but they can get behind it and start doing it. Absolutely. I mean, when we think about the number of messages we receive every day about us not being enough or that we need to look different, what can we do to counteract that? And I think that's what affirmations do. So for instance, I have an, I have several affirmations on my bathroom mirror, but the one I love the most is the one that says you are the shit. And so <laughs> I love that one I see that every morning, brushing my teeth. And at night I'm like, yeah, I am the shit. Yeah, I am. Right. It's like the more that we send these positive messages, they can start to quiet the, the sort of the pressure and the noise of having to conform. Um, and so I think they're powerful. Even if you find two or three that you love, say them to yourself all the time, put them around your house, put it in your purse, you know, have it be your, you know, your desktop, you know, background image. Um, and, and I think there's something about also writing the affirmation and not mm-hmm. just saying it out loud. There's something about like, you know, really sort of living into it. And I think the other thing is that sometimes we have to do something before we believe it. And so what I mean by that is it can feel uncomfortable to say, you know, I, I'm, you know, I'm the shit. It may feel uncomfortable. Like, who am I like to say that I'm the shit, but who are you to not say you're the shit? That would be my question. And so even if you don't believe it at first, just keep saying it because eventually it does, it feels easier to say, it feels easier to embody. So true. And I love the idea of saying it and writing it. I know a lot of people listening, they're journalers. They write in their journal every day, write that shit down. It's so important to keep saying it and writing it over and over again. I can't thank you enough. I'm a big fan. I was so excited to have you on the show. Thank you for being here. It it means the world to me. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Amy. Misty Copeland's entrance into the world of ballet was far from typical. While many of her peers were in pink slippers before they could walk properly, her introduction to the art was as a teenager at a boys and girls club. She excelled at her training, and at 17, she was invited to apprentice with the prestigious ballet company, the American Ballet Theater. Fifteen years later, she was promoted to principal dancer, becoming the first Black prima ballerina in all of ABT's 75-year history. Copeland recalls dealing with racism, overt or otherwise, during her ascension through the hierarchy of ballet. She recalls instances where her body was overcorrected and obsessed on by her teachers, who would bemoan her wide hips and large breasts. They claimed her body was a liability, even as she collected accolades for her performances in the core. They fretted over her defined muscles, as if being strong wasn't conducive to the rigorous physical demands of a career in classical ballet. In many ways, Misty Copeland's story is one of triumph, the classic motif of proving them all wrong. And yet, even after reaching the zenith of her industry, landing national sponsorships and worldwide fan base, she still ends up devoting a portion of her time and energy to fighting back against the racism that's baked into the ballet. 
One example would be the many black and brown dancers who recall purchasing extra foundation in order to paint their slippers to match their skin because their point shoes only came in European pink. The issue was so widespread, it led to a 2018 petition for more color options in ballet gear, which gained global traction. In 2019, Copeland spoke out against the use of blackface in the ballet La Belladere, pointing out that rather than darkening the skin of two white dancers, you could simply cast black ballerinas. Her comments were met with a mixed response from the ballet world, many of who defended the practice as the way it's always been. To dig deeper into the ways women of color are placed inside of archetypes when it comes to their bodies, I reached out to Dr. Lena Abirafa, who runs the Arab Institute for Women and splits her time between New York and Beirut in Lebanon. Dr. Abirafa's work centers feminist activism in the promotion of women's rights in her region, as well as advocacy on behalf of Arab women in the West. Are you ready to go? Yes. Sitting down to interview you is an intimidating experience for me because I feel like your list of accomplishments and accolades is so long. I'm not exactly sure how to summarize it for our listeners. So I figured I would throw the hard work over to you. And in your own words, can you tell us about the work that you do and why you've chosen this path? Oh, I think it chose me. Um, uh-huh. I think being born a woman in this world, uh, I think you are born in a female body with a female experience and you come to understand that life isn't exactly fair or equal or just or, or things don't make sense. And you start to question them. And that's what I did from a very young age. And I finally was able to put words and vocabulary and experiences, global experiences to the questions that I had as a kid when I was 14 years old. So I was really young when I started and it was through a course I took at the high school I went to at the Madeira School um, and it was called Comparative Women's History. And it wasn't actually about women's history but it was about the history of violence against women. And so that's where I saw uh, female genital cutting, uh, uh, foot binding, uh, women who would break their ribs to fit into corsets, uh, bridal burning, uh, intimate partner violence, just the most horrific history that has ever been told. And that was, that was the start of it for me. And now we're 30 plus years later and I'm a, a one trick pony. This is what I will do forever. If, if people ask you, what do you do? What do you say? Well, at present, what I do is I'm the executive director of the Arab Institute for Women, which is housed in the Lebanese American University. I'll talk about that in one second, but what I do is uh, work on global women's rights and to help people understand that women's rights are better for everyone, women's rights are non-negotiable. And if we haven't achieved that for uh, over half of the global population, what are we doing? So that's, that's what I do writ large. What I've done for several decades is work in humanitarian emergencies on ending violence against women, uh, which started in that, that fine class I just told you about. And then after two decades of that, all around the world, places like Afghanistan, Mali, Haiti, Papua New Guinea, uh, Sierra Leone, 
Central African Republic, all sorts of places where people probably don't go to visit. Um, I then moved into academia about six years ago, serving as, like I said, the executive director of this institute that's a cool hybrid, it's academic and it's activist. So it's not the kind of academic institute you'd think of that just churns out reports, but actually uh, talks about people's real lives and impact on the ground in terms of social change and policy change and the drivers of that across the Arab region. So that's what I do. And I you've I'm said making it so the much world more <laughs> better place for women. That's what I try to do. <laughs> yes, yes. And not many of us can say that at the age of 14, something we were taught in school shaped our entire yeah. existence. I mean, that yeah. is powerful. It just reminds us how important it is to take care of our girls in school right now and what we teach them and what we share with them. Wow. That's you, never, you never know what's going to hit you. And it didn't just hit me, it punched me in the gut. And that was it for me. I said, this is all I'm ever going to do. And people thought, gosh, that's really grim. Like you're kind of dark and depressing. These are nice hobbies or maybe a nice charitable endeavor, but this isn't a job. And I said, no, this is going to be my job. And this sure enough, job. it's my lifetime job. Yes. I'd like to make some greater gains in my lifetime. So we need to speed things up. <laughs> we do. Let's, <laughs> let's get going. Now, you split your time between New York and Lebanon. So I feel like you have a unique perspective on this. Speaking in broad strokes, do you see a difference in how women relate to their bodies in the Arab region versus how American women deal with body image? And how does that difference like manifest? And what do you think are some of the factors behind those differences? Well, I think that we're all obsessed with body image and we're all subjected to the whims of the media, of uh, our supposed role models, of influencers, of our kind of social media culture where we uh, take selfies and showcase and broadcast our lives and present our best selves, even if they're false all the time. I think that's a global phenomenon. And everywhere I have been around the world, not just the Arab region or, or in the US, but other countries, you can always find women's beauty products that are fundamentally damaging, like built on, on uh, patriarchal tools of oppression built on understandings of what is beautiful uh, for, for bigger breasts or whiter skin or slimmer waistlines. I mean, I feel like we're all drinking that same kind of Kool-Aid. Um, mm -hmm. But in the Arab region you know, and in, uh, in some other religious contexts, I think what people don't understand is nuance around things like veiling or not, you know, so-called Western dress or not, you know, how people view those kinds of, so what you put on your body, um, that can be uh, you know, liberating or oppressive or, or a mix of the two. I think those, we tend to look at those things as black and white and they're not. Hmm. Which, you know, I, I have to ask, how do you feel that American culture or Western culture in general views Arab women? Like, do, do they see the whole picture? You know, it's always been through an Orientalist kind of lens, right? So Edward Said's famous, work on Orientalism, I think holds true today still. The idea that they're objectified in this kind of like mysterious, you know, sexy, belly dancey sort of way, and then victimized or re-victimized as these oppressed kind of uh, women who are uh, subjected to religious edicts or, you know, their husbands or communities or kind of uh, whatever structures uh, that deny their rights. And at the same time, that denial of rights is everywhere around the world. Sometimes we forget to look inward, you know, in the States or in other countries where we assume that we're liberated, but, you know, liberation's not all as simple as that. 
Uh, so it's right. very easy to point fingers and say, you know, oh, those kinds of practices that happens to other women over there, you know, brown women, black women, Arab women, whatever kind of women you want. But in the end, you know, we really are all victims of that same kind of oppression, you know, talking about your body and denial of rights to your own body. I mean, in the US, we don't still we don't have full clarity on rights to our own bodies, you know, and certainly in other countries, it's, it's the same. So those ideas, unfortunately, exist just about everywhere. There's no country that's immune and there's no country that's achieved full equality. So I think when we look at those kinds of things, you know, sometimes we forget that that the front lines is right here, you know, or all around us, not just, you know, the stuff that happens over there. And if anything, you know, this pandemic that we're all hopefully near the end of is uh, is evidence of that. The idea that, you know, is home safe? Well, you know, not for everyone. Home's not safe for a lot of women. And that's women in the US, in Afghanistan, in, you know, Algeria, in, you know, pick your country, just about everywhere. Women knew that being at home wasn't necessarily the safest place for them, although it should be. And that's right. and when we've come to have this unfortunate universal experience of increased intimate partner violence as a result of the lockdown and the global measures we've taken to stay safe. Uh, it's, it's frightening. It's scary to even think about it, but I've heard so much discussion around that. And you touched on this a little bit, but how do stereotypes of, about Arab women harm their ability to gain body autonomy, both in their region and for uh, Arab American women living in the West? Well, you know, the idea is those stereotypes are very simplistic, right? It's this, it's a sense that you're, uh, if you're dressed in a, in a way that is, you know, Western or, or, or provocative or, you know, exposing your body, that that means you're liberated. And that if you're covered, veiled, uh, dressed more conservatively, perhaps, that you're oppressed. And that's a really right. simplistic analysis that is, it is not true for anyone. And it doesn't help uh, when you look at, um, supporting and empowering indigenous feminist movements. You think like, oh, you know, you all are wearing these kinds of things. So you're open, closed, you know, rights, no rights, whatever, liberated, oppressed, only denies women the rights to be able to have their own experience and to express themselves in the way that they want. And I think you know, there was a lot of criticism. I lived in Afghanistan for many years and there was a lot of criticism there about the burqa you know, as a very kind of visual manifestation of what it means to be covered. Um, and is that a tool of oppression or was that a tool of liberation? Were women able to have more autonomy and freedom and mobility by wearing it? Or were, they, you know, we failed to look at the differences. And then we assumed that if they adopted so-called Western dress, that they were free and liberated. And we, of course, had liberated them. But, you know, Afghan men out in the streets wearing jeans or any kind of Western attire didn't necessarily mean that they had changed the way they thought, you know. So we, we tend to do this with women, mostly look at how they dress as a manifestation of what their, their experience is. And I think that is, that's lazy. That's not true. Great word. That is lazy. I never thought of it. And as you're speaking, I could see myself being a part of these biases and thinking one way or another, not even having any clue that I did that. This is why I love this podcast. Hearing from your, your perspective opens up so many minds that are listening right now and the way that we've been thinking. So thank you for that. 
Um, I was looking at the global gender gap report for 2020, which for listeners who don't know, attempts to track progress on relative gaps between women and men on health, education, economy, and politics. And I'm wondering if you can give some perspective on how women's access to high level opportunities like political power or education start with how they feel about themselves. Is there a link here? You know what the thing is for me, you know, it's not about how we feel about ourselves as much as like you can offer all the opportunities in politics and education and, and the economy and whatever else. But if you don't have rights to your own body, if you don't have bodily autonomy and integrity, if you don't have the feeling that you are safe in your own body, in your home, on the street, in school, at work, at the marketplace, whatever, then everything else is pointless. So it's not about how you feel about yourself as much as like how people view you as a, you know, living a, in a, as a, as a female and having that female experience where your body is not your own on the street in, in the home according to the law you know you've got people that are, are, are deciding for you uh, that your body is public property that your reproductive rights are not yours that uh, everything that you do and, and, and say is subject to, to some kind of scrutiny. So if you don't have that kind of fundamental freedom in your own space and in your own being you know that, that's what I argue at least as the starting point for any work for women. It's not about, you know, here's a quota for 25% female presence in, in parliament, because presence also doesn't mean power necessarily, right? right. I mean, these are just starting points and not end points. Um, or, you know, arbitrary things like the number of women that are here and there, you know, we like to kind of throw around the numbers to make ourselves feel better. But if you can't be at home and be safe, if you can't walk the streets and be safe at any time, any place wearing whatever you want, you know, we, we've, got a, we've got a bigger problem. And I think starting with starting with women's safety, and this is what I used to do in the field, you know, that was a great kind of barometer, because if you're working in a humanitarian emergency, you know, you've got to distill to what's important. And I would have argues, arguments with colleagues all the time about, you know, food first or shelter first or whatever first. And I'd say, no, actually ask a woman, you know, does she want a full belly and have her body at risk? Or does she want bodily integrity and kind of go hungry? You know, I, I think we know Whoa. what she'd say, right? And so I would say to women, my, my entry point for, for a conversation is, do you feel safe? And you know, the answer most of the time is no. And so I would follow that up with, what will it take to make you feel safe? And then I would try and do just that. I mean, in my limited power with whatever I can, but then you hear from women themselves what they need to be safe. And then you can deliver everything else after we can have a conversation about all the other rights and opportunities and training and, you know, vocational skills. And, you know, here are three chickens, you know, go and sell the eggs, whatever types of stuff. But, you know, if you do not feel safe, and this has been proven as well in terms of, of uh, you know, national types of, uh, of studies that ask people, you know, what's your number one priority? What do you want from the government? You want the government to keep you safe. And then you want, you know, money and opportunities and education and, mm. you know, and parks and green space and whatever else. It's oh, true. perfectly said. And what do you need to feel safe? I, I'm curious, just real quickly, when you've asked that, can you give me some examples of what you've heard? Oh, a, a, a place to pee. Um, you know, uh, access to the bathroom, uh, letting my daughter, you know, go to the bathroom alone without me having to walk her, worry about her or force her to use a paper bag and throw the bag outside because oh. I'm too afraid to let her go outside because I don't know what's going to happen to her. Um, access to, to the market, uh, being able to sell our stuff you know, without being harassed or, or exploited. 
um, lighting, lighting from, you know, lighting on this dark path. Um, yes. you know, very, but it's going to, it's going to vary, but then you're, but at least you're asking and you're listening, right. you know, I think part of this whole conversation that's so interesting and the questions that I think a lot of people have that you've asked that are awesome is, you know, we make assumptions for people based on what they want and what they need, but, you know, uh, by a, a superficial examination of their, their condition, like we're looking at them and we're like, okay, you look like this, you know, you probably need this and we're going to deliver this for you. Well, sometimes you just have to actually ask. You know, and the same goes for like, for veiling, you know, people love to kind of fetishize that, like what's behind beneath your veil, you know, type of stuff. Well, you know, for, for many, it's, it, it's a cultural symbol, it's a symbol of resistance, you know, it, it might also be something that is imposed by family or society or religion, etc. But it, there are other reasons. And I think the nuance, you know, I'm going to, again, sorry, give the Afghanistan example, because it's so stark. The idea that we only knew about the, the human rights abuses that the Taliban were inflicting because women hid cameras under the burqas and videotaped that stuff for us and sent it. And then they were like, world, check this out. So that was a tool of resistance. I mean, you think it is like yes. this cloak of oppression, but also, you know, the look idea what that they, they did. Yeah. Look at what they did with it, you know. And I think that idea thinking about those kinds of things and, and looking beneath the surface, I think is really important. And we tend to not do it, especially with women. Especially with women. Okay, I'm gonna take a quick turn here because I wanna to talk to you about gender expression in the Arab world. What does femininity look like and how is female beauty evaluated, let's say now in 2021? Well, you know, I think it's, it's interesting because there's still a lot of traditional, things are evolving. Right. And I think globally, you know, we're coming to understandings that femininity looks very different, but there still are some traditional ideas about, you know, long hair and the way that you dress and how you carry yourself and makeup or not. I mean, I can make this very personal because I obviously have very short hair. And when I lived in, in Lebanon, I did for four years, I couldn't find anybody who was willing to cut it for me because they thought it was an absolute abomination that I insisted on oh. short hair. And this is now quite long. It was buzzed before. Uh, that I would insist on short hair and why am I making myself ugly? And what's, you know, am I, was I sick and recovering from a, some kind of an illness that I, where I lost my hair? So there was, it was beyond wow. belief. And so finally I went to a barber and that barber became not just my go-to for hair, but also my friend, because I said, you know, would you just buzz my head? And he said, well, I, I've never cut hair on a woman. I said, well, congratulations. This is your first time. And <laughs> And for four years, I was the only woman in that. It was a one chair kind of barbershop. And I was the only woman who ever graced that chair. And it was an extraordinary experience. But I felt like, first of all, I kind of penetrated the last bastion of the patriarchy because guys would be like, what's she doing in our chair? But also yep. the way he, as a hairdresser, came to own that. And he was like, that's Lena. She's a regular. And just shut everybody up. I thought, my work here is done. I've changed My one thing, one moment. And he, it was great because he said, you know, I told you short hair looks good on you. And I thought, <laughs> yes, you did. <laughs> oh, that is too funny. You know, as I hear you, you speak, I think like as a feminist above everything and everything else that you are, where does this confidence come from? Like what, how did you get that? I'm very curious, like just to hear you speak. Where is I, that know, from? You know, I think it's from seeing so much and, and feeling with women so much and carrying this, the carrying so much tragedy and so much sadness and, you know, our own experience as well. Like 
you can have a conversation with a group of women and say, and I've done this with friends and it's horrible to say, what is the first time that you recall uh, being touched and you didn't want it or receiving any kind of attention from a man that made you uncomfortable? And the stories that come out are horrible. You know, you're seven or five or, you know, it is just, you think this, it's the injustice of this. It's the heaviness that I, that I feel at this to me, which is the greatest human rights violation of our time and why we have not been able to fix this. Why, why can I not go outside at any time wearing whatever I want and walk down that alley that is dark and, and not feel, why can't I feel safe? Why? And I just never understood it. And from when I was a kid, it just made no sense to me. And I remember recently, well, not re maybe a while ago, be it when back when we could socialize, <laughs> being yeah. with being with a, a friend, a male friend who is six foot four, a very large guy. And we were headed to a restaurant to have dinner. And he said, let's take a shortcut down this, this dark little alley. And I said, stop here. I said, if I was alone, I would not be able to do this. I'd have to take a taxi. Or, to, or walk an extra 20 minutes to go the well-lit, very long way to be able to get to this restaurant. But you have probably never in your life thought, I'm afraid to walk down this alley. And I said, I just want you to have that feeling right for one second right now, because I'd never do this if I wasn't with you. And you can, you have the privilege of being able to do this every day, all the time, no, at any hour, no matter what. And he said, you know, I never, I'll never forget what you've just told me. And I thought, that's awesome. It sucks, but it's awesome yeah. because at least like, that feeling of being unsafe, you know, every woman knows it. And oh, I, yeah. I, I hate, I hate the, that this is the world that we live in. And I think that's what does it for me. It's, it's, yeah. ang it's sadness and anger. And when you take that anger and you package it and you think like, okay, there's this big ball of anger. I need to make it useful. I need to do something with it. I'm just going to like, I'm going to burst. I'm going to come what it looks like, like a you know, exploding planet. And this is what it looks like. <laughs> <laughs> and it's beautiful for sure. Tell me this final question. What's one thing you wish more people understood about the work that you're doing? That everybody needs to be doing it. That it's not, just, why is it my job to build this world where equality is for everybody? Yeah. Everybody needs to do it. It is not just left up to the kind of, you know, what am I, career feminist? Like, no, this is a principle that everybody needs to have. I mean, think of it like the environment, you know, for whatever people are, are environmentally active or conscious or not, you know, it's, you can't just leave it up to one person to go and scooping everybody, you know, scoop everybody's trash. You also right. have to like put your trash away, recycle, you know, wash your stuff out, don't use, but whatever it is that you're going to do, you also have a responsibility to do it. And what people don't understand about this type of work is that they see it in extreme. Like I'm going to use the environment as an example because it's just so, it, it's just a visual. Like if you want to work for in favor of the environment to, to protect the environment, you don't need to get on a Greenpeace ship. You don't need to strap yourself to the tractor to keep it from like bulldozing the the land. You can do it at home by just washing and reusing and recycling. And you know there are simple things you can do. And I think when it comes to this kind of work, people think you either have to throw yourself in front of the tractor or you can't do anything. And that's not true. These are the these conversations, these questions that you ask are more powerful when they're done inside your little home, in your space, in your community, in your family, with your kids, with your parents, with your your siblings than anything else, because that's where it starts. And when I, I a bunch of a few years ago, I did a, a TEDx talk and the theme of that was to start where you stand and to see that 
wherever you are is where you need to be in terms of your, your activism. You don't need a label. You don't need a job. You just need to, if you feel those kinds of things, and my God, you should feel them. You know, how can you not feel them? Uh, you right. should say something and you should do something. And the other thing is, you know, the role of the everyday, per everyday people and everyday activism, it's in the micro kinds of things. It's in one young guy telling another young guy, you know what, don't leave her alone. Stop it. You know, that's enough. It's, it's in that. And those are, those are game changers. You know, for me, those are massive, uh, small gestures that have huge spillover effects and they're contagious. If I ran around the world kind of saying that people would be like, she's old and crazy. She's lost it. But if everybody took it upon themselves to do something small, a tiny thing, it would have a huge difference. And I have to believe that. Otherwise I would just be exhausted and depressed. Oh gosh, let's believe it for sure. <laughs> What a treat, Lena. Thank you so much for being here with us. I, I am blown away by you and the work you're doing. And I know my listeners will walk away, just not value, but hopefully we will all take action as well. So thank you so much thank for you. this, this gift. Oh, that was, it's my pleasure. I could do this for days. Talking with Pia and with Lena, I realized that there are many things about my relationship with my body I have taken for granted. To paraphrase what Kara said in the last episode, white privilege does not mean that white people cannot experience suffering, but that suffering isn't part of a system of racialized oppression. I struggle with my body image. And a big part of doing this podcast is trying to learn from other women's struggles so I can better work through my own. I now realize that part of that work has to include fighting against racism in the body positivity space. We have to recognize that the exploitation of one woman's body hurts all of us who wish to be seen as more than a sum of our parts. Likewise, the fight to empower women of color helps all of us to be seen as more than our race, our gender, and our bodies. If we as women can work together to make things better for us all, rather than opting out because, oh, that doesn't apply to me, or I'm afraid to get involved with that. If we can do that hard work, we can build power for all of us. As Emma Lazarus once wrote, until we are all free, we are none of us free. Talking Body is hosted by me, Amy Porterfield. The show is produced and edited by Chelsea Harfouche with production support from Sterling Coates. Episodes are written and researched by Chelsea Harfouche and Amy Porterfield. Cameron Berkman is our executive producer. Special thanks to all the women who participated in the interview and research portion of this podcast. Talking Body is a 3% chance production. <laughs>